This is a picture of real fentanyl. These are sweet tarts. And if you opened up this little container of sweet tarts, it would look about the same. I mean, just last month, 2,000 pounds of fentanyl came across our border. That, that could kill 500 million people. We're coming into Halloween. Every mom in the country right now is worried, what if this gets into my kid's Halloween basket? If one child dies from this on Halloween, I gotta tell you, we have to take action to stop this right now because parents are terrified and we have no answers. What are we supposed to do? They're gonna go trick or treat. Parents have a decision to make. You don't let your kids get that candy. The days are getting shorter. The leaves are changing. The neighbors have a 12-foot skeleton in their yard. And murderous strangers are trying to kill your children. It's October in America. For decades, stories have spread on schoolyards, in living rooms, and on local news about poisoned Halloween treats. This year's version of the threat, according to the Drug Enforcement Administration and politicians like Ronald McDaniel, is so-called rainbow fentanyl. Fentanyl is a real and deadly problem, but is it more likely to end up in a trick-or-treat bucket just because it's now candy-colored? This week on the show, we're asking why these scary stories about threats to innocent children come up every year. I'm Laura Marsh. And I'm Alex Perrine. This is The Politics of Everything. In October, authorities seized 15,000 brightly colored fentanyl pills in a Lego box, apparently destined for distribution in New York City. The seizure came in the middle of a wave of media stories about the dangers to children of so-called rainbow fentanyl. We're joined now by Zachary Siegel, who writes about drug policy and the criminal justice system, to talk about what these seizures mean. Zach, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, I love the show. Happy to be here. Let's get to the really, really basic question here. What is fentanyl and what was seized here compared to what you might get in a hospital? Most simply, it is a synthetic opioid, which means unlike other opioids such as morphine or heroin or oxycodone, fentanyl doesn't require any raw organic compounds that are found in the poppy plant. All you need to manufacture fentanyl are the right chemical precursors. And then so there's that distinction between what's found on the street versus the hospital. And the big difference there is that in the hospital, you're getting pharmaceutical grade FDA approved fentanyl. This is a legal regulated substance. And that means people know how much to use. They know what the dose is. It's very, very safe for sedation and surgery, but it's also such a disaster (laughs) on the street because nobody knows what they're getting. There's a very small window between the therapeutic dose and the lethal dose. So the situation with street fentanyl, how bad is the fentanyl situation right now? It's pretty remarkable to see how rapidly street fentanyl has just fully penetrated America's drug supply. It can only be measured in the metric tons. And so we're also dealing with staggering numbers of overdose deaths. And I think that's where things get complex because there is a genuine threat. Over 70,000 people died from drug overdoses linked to the illicit street fentanyl just last year. So it makes sense. There's a lot of concern about fentanyl, the prevalence of fentanyl. It's prevalence just on the street in all kinds of drugs that could be cut into and you might not know. But I want to talk specifically about this rainbow fentanyl idea and break down the example that Alex mentioned. 
There's a lot of different pieces to this story. First, I want to just establish what the narrative in the news is. What are people saying about the rainbow fentanyl pills and what are they supposed to be doing? The new quote-unquote rainbow fentanyl phenomenon comes from a DEA press release where basically they said this is a new attempt by the drug cartels to lure and entice young children as new customers to hook this younger generation of people. The whole premise was based on the fact that the pills have these kind of poppy pastel colors, Mm -hmm. that it's pink and yellow and green and blue, and they look like Skittles or something, but not really, but that's what they say. So according to the the urban legend version of this slash DEA narrative, Children like candy, and if they see other stuff that vaguely looks like candy, they will want this and thus become addicted. The DEA has warned that traffickers might use social media to push these pills on children, and they even included a kind of guide to emojis that drug dealers might include when they're trying to, I guess, sell, ultimately, rainbow fentanyl to children. I have several questions about this. One is, is it that new for pills to be colored? I mean, if you have any prescriptions, you've probably got some orange pills, some blue pills, pink, yellow. This is the way people keep track of, this is the pill I take on Tuesday mornings. This is the pill I take on Fridays. This is the one I have two times a day. If you know anyone who's elderly, color-coded pills really, really help people keep track of all the medications they have to take. That's absolutely right. I think there's totally banal reasons why these are colored, very anodyne, and nothing really sinister behind it. I think of of Benadryl. It is neon pink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like no one is accusing Benadryl of trying to like target children with their product. It's branding. It's we all see a bright pink pill and we associate it with Benadryl, and that's how marketing works. Is it new for fentanyl to come in different colors, though? I mean, is a year ago, would the pills all have been white? Like, is this actually a change in what's going out on the street? No, it, it really isn't. And so for a while, the fentanyl pills being seized were mostly all blue. Mm-hmm. And they were really trying to mimic and replicate a popular brand of oxycodone. The demand is for pharmaceutical pills, but those are very hard to get. And so the suppliers are filling that demand because they have so much fentanyl, they don't know what to do with it. So they're trying to sell it as counterfeit pills. Some of the emojis that the DEA is warning against are, they include the pill emoji, which is like, you know, that makes sense. Fair enough. But there's also a chocolate bar emoji, a bus emoji. And then they are claiming that the emoji code for Adderall is an A with a train next to it. Hmm. So it all seems very mysterious. I'm not sure what it means. <laughs> you know, a if- bus, a bus, and a train. What if your What if your child is just an urbanist, just a big mass <laughs> transit? They <laughs> just love transit, which lots of kids do. Like kids That's are true. These just seem. It seems like that phenomenon of like identifying something really omnipresent and attaching it to a worrying trend. It's easy to be like, oh, this is popping up at the same time as this worrying trend, but it's popping up because it's just widely used. The two DEA emoji codes that I love are first, uh, a cookie means a large batch of drugs, allegedly. Mm -hmm. 
And then the apparent universal sign for drugs is a maple leaf for some reason. <laughs> really? <laughs> that, according to the DEA's emoji decoded, yes. Sure, yeah. I just like the idea that, like, the emojis hold the key to solving this enormous problem. <laughs> like, if we can just figure out what emojis people are using, that will shut this whole thing down. Well, that's why it's it's such a classic drug war story here, though, because... We're talking about a story that was essentially the result of a DEA press release that tries to simplify this issue. But what you're describing is basically, you know, the rise of fentanyl as a result of it being harder to get oxycodone. And it's harder to get oxycodone because that was the previous drug that we waged war on, only for fentanyl to take its place. Exactly. We're playing whack-a-mole here. So in the 90s, it was the Kurt Cobain years, and it was just plain old heroin. And then in the early 2000s, it was oxycodone, and we get the Purdue Pharma scandal. And then as soon as the FDA started to make oxycontin, which is Purdue Pharma's oxycodone drug, more difficult to get, and they changed the formula. Right around 2010, it looks like in the CDC data, a nuclear bomb of heroin overdose deaths happened Mm. because everybody switched over to the illicit supply. And and then heroin had its time for only a couple years before we really started to see illicit fentanyl basically supplant the heroin market. And so that's where we're at now, where Every drug that kind of comes along in this game is just deadlier and more potent than the last. And just to be really clear, the drug dealing business, I mean, it's a business and you don't typically give your supply away to children. For free. For free. To would clarify. <laughs> one wouldn't usually do that if one was, for example, in the business of selling drugs. It's just kind of like we're all laughing because if you think about it for more than five seconds, it literally crumbles. Like it, it falls apart and we can't even grab onto any substance here because it just frankly doesn't make any sense. I want to unpick one more piece of the example Alex gave of the fentanyl that was seized in the Lego shipment. People who are raising concerns about this would point to the fact this was found in Lego as a kind of smoking gun that suggests, see, this really was something that was aimed at children. It came in with toys. I mean, it's just so perfect as a story, you know, on cable news, on local news. So if the drugs are found in a Lego box, what does that mean? Yeah, it means that any product that is being shipped into America, it can be used to stash some fentanyl supplier's product. It is very hard to detect fentanyl because it is so compact, it's so potent, it can evade the DEA and the Border Patrol. If instead of a big bulky shipment of heroin, which has kind of a distinct smell to it, fentanyl is just a a tiny package of white powder and enough of that can be cut and broken down to really be sold in thousands, hundreds of thousands of doses, depending on the weight. That really cuts to the heart of what is so absurd about the way it's frequently spoken about by law enforcement and the media. There's this idea that the fact that it's quote-unquote candy-colored or that it's found near toys is evidence of some attempt to, like, brand fentanyl as for children. But they're just selling – they're selling a 
product that has a demand period there's marketing involved i guess but the, the it's 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 still just selling drugs to drug users exactly and this isn't only a phenomenon with fentanyl mdma ecstasy pills they've always had some brand and it's yeah. often like luxury brands cuz people in clubs might find it enjoyable that they took a chanel pill or something like this has always been the case there's mercedes logos on mdma pills it's kind of the same thing mm. there's another part of the logic of this rainbow fentanyl panic that also has been puzzling me drug dealers are going to give children fentanyl possibly pretending it's candy in order to get them hooked that seems to be one of the fears out there in the media narrative but at the same time we're told that just touching fentanyl it's so deadly that that could be enough to kill you. Yeah, police officers are dropping left and right, right. So how do those two things fit together? How can you get someone hooked secretly by giving them fentanyl while also insisting that just being near it is so dangerous that it could even cause death? That question really gets at, I think, the kind of irreconcilable tensions at work here. It's hard not to look at everything happening about fentanyl right in the run-up to the midterm election where we have these warring sides fighting over crime, there's civil unrest, and, and it seems like fentanyl kind of is this container to hold all these societal fears and anxieties. It's kind of like there's fentanyl, the real drug that too many people are dying of. But then there's fentanyl, the subject, the symbol, the media story, which is almost a different beast entirely. Exactly. That's a really good way to put it. Zach, thank you so much for talking to us today. It was great. Thanks for having me on. Read Zachary Siegel's latest article for The New Republic, Police Are Repeating the Drug War's Dark History in the Fentanyl Era, at newrepublic.com. After the break, we'll be back to talk about how the rainbow fentanyl panic fits into a long history of fears about poisoned treats on Halloween. We've been talking about so-called rainbow fentanyl, brightly colored fentanyl pills, and the fear that drug cartels are using it to target kids, especially on Halloween. The sociologist Joel Best has been studying fears of poisoned or contaminated Halloween candy for several decades. He calls the idea that strangers are deliberately handing out dangerous substances or items like razor blades, Halloween sadism. And he's tried to track down cases of it actually happening. He wrote a paper on his findings in 1985, and he's been updating that paper ever since. Joel, you've been studying fears about Halloween sadism since the 1980s. When did this all start? Well, trick-or-treating is not as old as you think it is. Trick-or-treating really becomes widespread after the Second World War, and it's sort of an anti-delinquency measure. Mm -hmm. hmm. Right away, uh, I've, I've had people tell me that, people a little older than I am, that uh, they heard people would heat pennies in skillets and pour them into the outstretched hands of trick-or-treaters. That would be a story from the late 40s or early 50s. So hmm. almost as soon as trick-or-treating becomes widespread, it's there. Wow. You described trick-or-treating as an anti-delinquency measure. What does that mean? What were they trying to stop kids doing on Halloween? 
in the good old days, in the first half of the 20th century, I mean, Halloween, there was never one way to celebrate Halloween, but Halloween was often celebrated by adolescent boys who would go out and commit acts of vandalism. The prototypical example, which isn't very realistic today, is tipping over outhouses and doing things like that. So there were, there were people that were always complaining that this was out of control. So some communities very deliberately said, okay, this is what we're going to do for Halloween. Halloween is going to be something that's done on a particular day at a particular hour. Children are going to walk from house to house in costumes. Householders will uh, give them treats, you know, and it was intended to make it more of a domestic thing. The whole family was involved. Littler kids were involved. The older kids were expected to behave themselves. So there was this effort to make it more orderly by having trick-or-treating, but the fears of something bad happening went back to the very beginning. You started studying this in 1985. What did you find? Oh, well, I looked at press coverage going back 25 years, and that at that moment it was 1958. It seemed to me that it was very unlikely that this was happening. So I figured, you know, the news would cover it. And I looked at the three biggest papers in the three biggest metro areas, the New York Times, the LA Times, and the Chicago Tribune, and I couldn't find any evidence of any child having been killed or seriously hurt by a contaminated treat picked up in the course of trick-or-treating. So what you see in the press is lots of stories about this, but they're all warnings and reports of concerns being raised. Yeah, you see very, very few stories. I've only found, I don't know, maybe 150 stories since 1958, where they specify a town and they specify how the treat was contaminated. And virtually all these stories say, fortunately, nobody was hurt. <laughs> yeah. So there just isn't any evidence that this is happening. This is a folktale. It's, it's a contemporary legend. Everybody's heard this story. You know, like the National Safety Council and so on will put out lists of Halloween treats. You make sure your kid can see through the mask, don't have a costume your kid can trip over, and uh, be sure and check the treats. What kinds of things are they warning against? I mean, what typically are people worrying about popping up in the trick-or-treat basket? Well, I think the theory is that there could be uh, some sort of poison or drugs or sharp objects. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up with the razor blades and apples story, you know, like we all kind of grew sure. up with that. But I think some of the very few examples of this are kids doing pranks or in one really tragic incident, uh, a, a father poisoning his own child, right? Yeah, I, I think Ronald O'Brien, who is the guy that, that did that, I think he heard these stories and he thought, oh, there are lots of these. I will commit the perfect crime. I will poison my own child and no one will ever suspect me because there are all these maniacs out there poisoning kids. And in fact, the police actually fell for it for about two days. And then they discovered that O'Brien had taken out a life insurance policy on his son and, and uh, had purchased some poison. And, you know, he was arrested, tried, convicted, and it being Texas, he was executed. But I think I think that that speaks to something really interesting about the hold that these fears have on our psyche or in our culture mm -hmm. is that uh, it's all it's it, we want to sort of externalize the danger to children while uh, and I think I think in a lot of cases minimizing the danger that that comes from the everyday or from at home. Sure. Yeah. Halloween is the most dangerous holiday of the year in terms of emergency room admissions for children. And the reason is that we send tens of millions of kids out into the dark one night a year and they get hit by cars <laughs> mm -hmm. and they trip mm -hmm. over their costumes and they, they stumble over the curb and they wind up getting injured. They are not showing up in the emergency room poisoned. 
Do you see any changes in the way this story is constructed over the years? Like, does it reflect specific things that people are scared of at that moment? What happens is it reflects recent news, usually September crime stories of one sort or another. And there, there are really five examples of this. In 1982, there were the Tylenol poisonings, which occurred in mm. September. And that led to a lot of worried commentary about what would happen. In 2001, in the aftermath of 9-11, there were a number of rumors about terrorists plotting something for Halloween. In 2014, which was the first year that Colorado had uh, legal outlets for recreational marijuana, the Denver police released a video saying that you need to be very careful because these edible candies look like regular candies. And everybody got very excited about that. <laughs> and then a couple of years ago, there was a case where there were a couple of people who had died vaping with THC-infused black market canisters, okay? And that was a big story, THC lethal. And then the police in Pennsylvania arrested somebody they confiscated some edible marijuana, which would not have been legal in Pennsylvania at that time. So it obviously been brought in from out of state. And it had, you know, was prominently labeled as containing THC. And those two stories were kind of coupled into a fear that there was going to be THC poisoning, which, of course, didn't happen. And then this year, of course, we've got rainbow fentanyl. Why do you think this idea endures? Why does it have such staying power? It just seems to circulate among people. There are a couple things going on. One is that it's a great story. You know, uh, we uh, like to worry about vulnerable children, and it's a vulnerable child story. The other thing is, I think it's the best thing in the world that you can possibly worry about. You know, there is somebody in your neighborhood who is so crazy, they will poison little children at random. But they are so tightly wrapped, they only do this one night a year. <laughs> yeah, you can manage trick-or-treating however you want to manage it. You can tell your kids they can't go trick-or-treating. They can go to the mall. They have to go with you. You can only go to the houses of people you know. You can trunk-or-treat in the church parking lot. Whatever you think you need to do to keep your kids safe. And then November 1st, the family gathers around the breakfast table, and you count noses, and everybody's there. And you can go... Phew, you know, we don't have to worry about that for another 364 days. It's a great thing to be worried about. It's a very manageable fear. It's completely manageable. Yeah, a very manageable fear. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the difference between things that are spooky and things that are scary. Something that's spooky is this sort of like fear of something that isn't really going to happen. And what's scary is like your kid getting hit by a car when they cross the street. Right. Which really could happen. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. Right. And, you know, the, the whole point of Halloween, of course, is that it's it's supposed to be spooky. And most of us have stopped believing in ghosts and goblins, but we believe in criminals. And so we've just transformed the old Halloween threat into a more modern, more plausible version that gives us a little thrill as we go around risking our lives picking up treats. Joel Best is the author of numerous books, including Damned Lies and Statistics, Untangling Numbers from the Media, Politicians, and Activists. Seen in light of urban legends about Halloween sadism, the story of rainbow fentanyl, as illogical as it is, makes a certain kind of sense. It channels anxieties about larger societal problems into a manageable fear with simple solutions. But there's another piece of this. After the break, we'll be back to talk about how the myth of rainbow fentanyl serves politicians and the news media. Would you like to hear more from TNR? 
Every day, our writers and editors work to bring you the reporting and analysis you need to make sense of the world. But we can't do it without you. Please consider subscribing to The New Republic with our special offer at tnr.com slash special offer. That's tnr.com slash special offer. So I think we've established at this point that international drug cartels are probably not targeting trick-or-treaters with rainbow fentanyl, and that fears about candy-colored pills are part of this long tradition of myths about kids getting poisoned treats on Halloween. So given that this is basically a fantasy, why is the news so obsessed with it? We're talking now with Natalie Schur, a regular contributor to The New Republic, about what politicians and the media get out of these kind of stories. Natalie, hi, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I remember, ah, oh boy, 10 years ago, reading Jack Schaefer, the longtime media critic, writing in Slate about parties where kids were putting pers- like prescription pills in bowls and like trading them around. He couldn't find any documented evidence of it either. Why do these stories persist without anyone ever actually uncovering examples of kids being targeted by these drugs? For one thing, I think that these stories really serve to support the paradigm of the drug war as it's currently being waged. What we do know about people dying of fentanyl is that they are overwhelmingly people who are using fentanyl on purpose to get high and aren't able to dose properly because they don't know what's in it and then tragically die as a result. The solutions to a problem like that are harm reduction. We know that things like needle exchange works. We know that things like overdose prevention sites, safe injection sites work, safe supply initiatives. That is how we curb this epidemic. By pretending as if the victims of the opioid epidemic are kids who are going to be unwittingly poisoned by fentanyl against their will, I think that that really is a different paradigm that might start to justify more carceral solutions of the exact type that the DEA has been behind. Carceral solutions, I think, would be a lot more justified if the problem here was that people were psychotically poisoning children that they don't know. That's a really important point. And we're not trying to, obviously, we're not trying to downplay the scope of the fentanyl crisis and the opioid crisis in the United States. But there's something about the idea of unwitting children as victims that I guess both seems scarier to people, but also suggests, as you say, like the the answer is punishment when the actual real victims in real life of this crisis are like not people who are being like snuck drugs unsuspectingly, but people who are seeking them out. And it's a harder sell to say we should protect them than the quote unquote innocent kids. Well, in protecting those people, which is something that I absolutely think we should do, would lead us to a different set of solutions than the ones that the Drug Enforcement Agency is there to push. There is something very funny about the very agency that is behind all of these carceral measures being the ones that are slinging these stories that I very much hope they know our BS. I I think it would be almost worse if they really do think this is happening. That would suggest they're even less effective as opposed to being cynical with propaganda. It's interesting because I think this uh, focus on children being the victims of fentanyl, you're right, it distracts from the people who really are suffering and really are at risk from this supply of drugs. But I wonder if it's also distracting from the things that children are really at risk of. There are a lot of things that cause real harm to children in this country that we are not doing anything about. We have no intention 
of addressing. It seems like this story is also distracting from a lot of other things we could be talking about, about the well-being of children in America. I think that you are right that it's not very hard to think of things that actually are harmful to children. It's not even hard to think of ways that the fentanyl crisis itself is harmful to children. A lot of the carceral measures that hurt people who use drugs, the primary victims of the fentanyl crisis, uh, are also hurting their children. There are a whole lot of children whose parents are incarcerated for drug-related offenses when, you know, their lives would be better with more materially, socially. Parents who do overdose and, you know, become very disabled or die who would have benefited from things like safe supply, needle exchanges, overdose prevention centers in their communities. Children are victims of the fentanyl crisis and the way it's being handled. And I think that looking at those things instead of imagined crises of rainbow-colored fentanyl that is trying to hook them years before they can afford to (laughs) buy their own drugs would probably be a better use of everyone's time. Yeah. I think we've gotten at this point in a few different ways, but there's something for the U.S. psyche, for the media, for politicians, there's something appealing about these sorts of crises that you can blame on an outsider. You can address with punitive measures against villains. That's more appealing than something difficult like, let's solve addiction in the United States. Let's actually address the problems that kids face for real. There's something almost comforting about fantasy problems problems facing children that are, you know, sort of easier to address than the very real things that threaten them. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think on a very basic level, panic about children does get eyeballs. I think another much more cynical thing to point out whenever there's Halloween panic afoot, <laughs> I think it's the fact that local outlets especially are looking for Halloween content. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Everyone's got to have holiday pegged content. And a story like this not only crosses off your holiday content box, but also makes you feel like you're you know, doing some sort of public service. I was just looking around to see who was the first person this year that had associated the rainbow fentanyl thing specifically with Halloween, because the DEA had their press release about rainbow fentanyl and there were warnings about that. But it seems like the origin this year of the story that the rainbow fentanyl will be in Halloween trick-or-treating just came from a couple of outlets reporting the DEA had issued this press release in the month of October. And so it was phrased as ahead of Halloween. And then there's nothing in the story that's like, Related to Halloween, (laughs) nothing from the DEA about Halloween that I've seen. It's like DEA issues warning ahead of Halloween, which literally just means it was like October the 2nd. Yeah, you just get the impression that someone was at a meeting, their monthly meeting, and they said, you know, it's October. Let's talk about Halloween stuff. And someone kicked this out there and they nodded and then handed it to their comms person. And, you know, you can't get sued for repeating what the cops tell you or what a politician says in public. And that also means you don't need to confirm it. When the police give you material, that's free material when you're in the media. And it's just sort of easy to say, here's something Chuck Schumer said. Here's something the DEA said, or here's something the local police department said. You don't have to do any extra, like, expensive reporting. You can just be like, here's the thing that authorities said. The interesting thing, too, about this is that it's this rare bipartisan issue where you have Chuck Schumer warning against this specifically, but then you also have Ronna McDaniel, the head of the RNC, saying 
almost exactly the same thing. And and it's like this rare thing they can agree on is the issue that's completely made up. <laughs> yeah, the thing that will bring together the two warring sides in American politics is fighting against imaginary problems. And crime, right? And crime, so like, oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> imaginary issues related to crime, you're just going to knock it out of the park in terms of hitting your numbers, getting your constituents <laughs> excited, making them feel grateful that you are looking out for them and alerting them to various community issues. I think that that is a huge problem. And I think that as much as we've had some willingness to reevaluate mass incarceration and certain aspects of it, I think people are surprisingly uncritical about some of the rhetorical dynamics that eventually lead to those things. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just going to admit to really bad parenting here, but Julius has... Uh, he had a terrible toothache and we took him to the dentist and he has a big cavity in one of his molars and it's literally, literally candy has, be- has turned out to be a deadly threat to my child. But there's no danger of fentanyl. So I think Halloween, that's like the threat. The threat is actually the candy for me this year. So <laughs> if his toothache gets bad enough, rainbow fentanyl might be <laughs> a might really be, good Yeah, it might be. I'll try that. Yeah. <laughs> The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Myron Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoy The Politics of Everything and you want to support us, one thing you can do is go to wherever you listen to the podcast and rate the show. Every rating and review helps. Thanks for listening.